Welcome to episode five of Bottoms on Top. I'm John. And I'm Andreas. And we're happy to have you. What's up, Andreas? Not much, John. It's Halloween on the day of our recording. It's, yeah, y'all thought you were going to get all your Halloween out last episode. We dedicate two episodes to Halloween. 1-800-BITCH-YOU-THOUGHT. <laughs> <laughs> so because it was Halloween, that means that we had um, Swalloween, the True. gay festivity of the... Gay festivity of the fall semester, I guess you could say. I guess you could say that. Yeah. We got our nails done together for Halloween. Yes, we did. I think that the nail lady really hooked us up. She helped us get nice, spooky Halloween colors. She gave Andreas that black accent. Yes. Well, she offered it to you as well. Yeah, I didn't want it though. I don't really like it, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I mean, like, it looks good on you, but like... (laughs) And the shade comes out on air. Okay. (laughs) Anyway... Um, Andreas, you just had a piece you wrote published in 34th Street for the mental health issue. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, so I wrote a piece um, exploring a little bit of um, grinder and gay loneliness and like how grinder culture is hurting um, the mental health of a lot of people in the gay community. Um, it was a great piece to write, personally, because I felt like I was just getting out a lot of thoughts that I had on the topic. And... Um, It's clearly not the first piece that's been written on this. There was a really long and really good HuffPost piece about this last year. But the HuffPost piece, the biggest critique that I have of it was that it was so, like, just, like, white, focusing on, like, white gays and these problems and didn't really address intersectionality and things that happen on Grindr because of that. Mm -hmm. So I tried to do that with my piece. I talked to a really good friend of mine, Kenneth. Um, He gave me a lot of thoughts about um, just how whiteness works in favor of people and um, because of that hurts other people on Grinder. I talked to another source who um, discussed how Grinder really affects his eating disorder and seeing different body types and things like that. So I would recommend reading it not only because I think, not because I wrote it, but because I think it's important for us to like see these thoughts put on paper, put online, and realize that we're not alone in this and that we should take care of ourselves and not give in to this self-perpetuating culture or don't let this get to you because there are a lot of other issues in the gay community yeah i i enjoyed it a lot i think that everyone on campus who has ever used grinder will find something that they can relate to in the piece and i think it's important that we talk about these things because you know i love grinder it's the only home i've ever known (laughs) but at the same time it's not the most loving home i've ever known a house is not a home that's true that's so true (laughs) Um, and so I think it's important that we're always thinking of ways that we can be kinder to one another. And you bring up a lot of good points. Yeah, just so, taking care of yourself and taking care of others. Check it out, check it out. Try to get his uh, his rankings up. He's trying to get that <laughs> click, click, click. Click, click, y'all. Come on, I want to see my bar up there. <laughs> don't, you don't even have to read it, just click it. <laughs> Andres, do you think I have a gay voice? Hmm, Yeah. You do. Thank God. Because yesterday I was with this dude and he was like, you still talk like a dude, which like is sexy. And I was like, hold the phone. I saw your tweet on this and I was like, that's interesting. I don't know if maybe it was like someone that I just met. So I was like a little bit more reserved in my speaking, like a little more cautious. But now I'm like, I'm terrified that someone might confuse me for a straight. I don't think that would ever happen, but it still haunts my nightmares. And so when that guy said that, I was like, 
I need to go to like speech therapy or something. <laughs> Get a gay, gay speech voice. therapy. <laughs> For, yeah, I. No, you have a gay voice. Do I have a gay voice, John? Yeah, you do. Okay, I knew that. <laughs> I didn't need to ask. <laughs> I don't. I feel like it's so hard to like hear your own voice, though. It is hard to hear your own voice. Um, and also, like, there are so m- there is no gay voice. There are many gay voices. Exactly. <laughs> Let's just put that out there. We've been trying out this new nickname where I call you Drea because I'm a nickname person. How does it feel so far? Personally, I kind of like it. Okay. I've never really liked a nickname before, so you win this round, John. Okay. You win. You're the only one who's won this round. Okay. And let me know at any point if it's not working okay, Drea. I will. Okay, so basically I forgot to text Nick Joyner until yesterday <laughs> to come on this podcast, and he's in class. So instead, we're going to go out and about on campus and ask people what, you know, autumnal intimacy looks like for them. Like, how do they envision romance in the fall? And after that, we're going to have Filippo Trenton, a professor at Penn who teaches queer cinema, come and talk to us about the history and the current uses of the term queer in academia and general life. John and I are here at the LGBT Center uh, interviewing people, asking them what is their ideal fall date and what does autumn intimacy mean to you? Let's get started. So what do you think of when you think of autumn intimacy and just fall time? Autumn is definitely very exciting for me because I come from a place where you transition directly from summer to winter. So it kind of helps things slow down a bit and talk about it with somebody and reflect about it. What do you find special in a person? So what do you think of when you think of fall romance? Well, I honestly just think about being forever alone. (laughs) <laughs> like, you walk down Locust Walk, and then you see all those couples, like, holding hands, and you're just like, well, it must be nice. So what do you think of when you think of romance in the fall? Uh, so being from the East Coast and the Northeast, where, like, the, lo- the uh, leaves change and things like that, I always think about apple picking, um, like, cuddle time. Like, it's not cold yet, but it's, like, definitely, like, let's just cuddle up. Um, you can still be outside. And, um, you know, like walking, taking like walks and things, things that you think are like more summer stuff, but they're not because summer's hot and gross. Um, But in the fall, it's like that's I really think of like that romantic, like New England kind of movie romance, what they call rom-com situation. So thank you. So what do you think of when you think of fall romance? I think of cuffing season. I also think of. The colors, they're very pretty. Um, And walking down locusts with the breeze in my face. So what do you think of when you think of fall romance? I don't think that exists, to be honest, because I feel like most people start getting cuffed around January, February, when it's really cold outside and we just need a nice warm body to sleep next to. So what do you think of when you think of romance in the fall? I think of crunchy leaves and snuggling up by a fire and having delicious food that I don't have to cook. That's what I like to hear. Thank you. Okay, so we're here with Filippo Trenton, 
Uh, he is a professor at Penn, and he teaches queer cinema, and we're going to talk about the term queer in the past and present. Welcome, Filippo. Thank you. Thank you, Andreas. Thanks for being here. So our understanding on this topic is that for a long time, queer was kind of a disparaging term used to describe gay people, and then over time it was reclaimed by the community. And can you just tell us about like how that process went and what's the history there? The interesting thing about like this process of a war being used in order to discredit people and then uh, claiming it back is that at some point during the 1980s, this war that uh, was always used in order to like name people in a negative like in a negative way, started to be reclaimed as a sort of like locus of like positive values. Um, at the same time, this corresponded to like a very exciting moment in academic discourses in which gay lesbian studies was emerging, feminist theory was emerging, and um, this made it possible uh, toward the end of that decade of the 1980s to actually start talking about queer studies, queer theory, in a way that could like move away from a more identitarian perception of sexuality. So a lot of like the value of this word came from being able to kind of cut across uh, uh, divisions between what is like gay studies, what is lesbian studies, what is feminist studies. So these words were like, there were all these like numerous fields emerging that the institutionalization of queer theory allowed basically to cohere in one single discipline. And, uh, and I think that the way in which then in public discourse this like was then remobilized in order to uh, reclaim a positive value had to do with a lot of like how do we cut across distinctions that produce gender asymmetries between men and women and queer kind of like was at the forefront of this project of inclu inclusion in spite of um, differences uh, according to gender, sexuality and so on. It's very funny for me, actually, myself, like to talk about this because I, I'm not a native speaker, so the first of English language. So, the first encounter that I have with queer as a concept was immediately positive, uh, and it had to do with yeah, queer studies, queer theory. Um, so I don't know for you guys, for instance, nowadays, like how how when you when you hear this word, does it have like a positive or negative connotation, like this to me is something very interesting for us, like the, this word that it kind of like can, kind of encapsulates. Yeah, I've only felt queer in a positive connotation. Well, never like, it was either positive or like a neutral connotation. I don't think I've ever like felt it as like a negative term. I've never felt like a bite or like it was anything wrong with the term. Mm -hmm. I don't know, John, what do you think? Um, I would say that I didn't experience it in a positive sense until like late high school, like maybe when I was 16 or 17. And not that it was ever like directly used against me, I don't think as like a derogatory term, but the understanding, there's like the classic like game, like smear the queer, like mm -hmm. playgrounds where you're just like tackling someone and the idea is that like they're gay or whatever. Um, so it wasn't until later, and then especially when I got to Penn, that I was exposed to it as a positive term. Mm. So again, for both of you, in a way, come from education, like uh, university or high school. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, that tells us something about how successful, but 
then I want to talk a bit maybe about the limits of it, but like how successful the process of institutionalization of queer studies and queer theory has been in the academic discourse. So <clears throat> what do you think some of the like limitations are using the word in both academia and I guess just segueing into like casual use that people say today, like the queer community, like what is mm-hmm. that? And how is that limited by that word? Yeah, I mean, that's like, that's a question maybe, yeah, that I would like also to, yeah, ask you what you think about it. But, like, my perception is that in the last years, um, I mean, in a way, this project, I mean, I can read some quotations from early 90s. Teresa de Lauretis, who was the first person who actually coined the term queer theory, she organized a conference at the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1990s using this term queer theory. Um, and in a special issue, which was published the year and year after for the journal Differences, she describes the project of queer theory as, and I quote, to recast or reinvent the terms of our sexualities, to construct another discursive horizon, another way of, thi- of thinking the sexual. So there is this like very utopian um, trust in this uh, discourse that has to do with something which we are not in a way. So queerness is never something that at the beginning of the like queer theory is something that you can actually inhabit or be. It's something, it's like a possibility of encountering a different sexuality, which is still not here, but that compulsory heterosexuality, for instance, doesn't allow us to see. But it's also not what lesbian and uh, gay sexuality are. So it's always something that can 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 originate from a sort of like deviant sexuality, but uh, it's more like a sort of like utopian possibility for a dif- for a different way of thinking sexuality. Now, if we think nowadays, I think that project failed in a way, in the sense that, or like partially failed, or like never really took over, in the sense that I'm not sure whether the way in which queer is used nowadays has to do with this, like, horizon of different, like, possibility of thinking the sexual. I mean, uh, the fight for, um, like, yeah, gay marriage, for instance, wasn't based, was more based on a project of inclusion, uh, on a a sort of, like, uh, more, like, mainstream and normative model of uh, sexuality, which is fair enough for a political move. But if we think... For instance, that, yeah, nowadays queer is more so a sort of umbrella term, not for, like, including a lot of different types of sexuality. That project kind of, like, never really took over in a way. So, for me, queer nowadays is, like, for instance, like, I really read uh, very interesting uh, project, political project, like, claiming safe spaces, for instance, on campus or gender-neutral toilets as part of queerness, uh, of, like, a sort of, like, queer project of, like, building up different spaces. But I wonder what has been lost also uh, within within this project. Um, Can queer simply be a sort of term that pushes us to claim a safe space or, or a space of, like, more inclusion? Or should it kind of destabilize what a safe space is? Um... I don't know. That's a question that I have, and I, I I don't know how to answer now, but I think it's still really happening in a way. I think what kind of brought us to this topic is that on campus, like uh, among undergraduates at least, 
I think the term is thrown around a lot. And the intention, I think, is inclusion because nobody wants to, you know, misspeak or leave anyone out when they're talking about the community. Um, but then I think, in my experience, then the usefulness of the term is lost a bit. Like when I was a freshman and sophomore, I found myself like using the term more and more to describe groups or even myself. And then as I started thinking a little bit more critically, I was like, well, can I describe myself with that term? Like, mm -hmm. do I even really know what it means or am I just using a buzzword? I mean, at the core of queer theory, there is a problem, and this is a debate in the field, whether it's queerness is something that you can actually claim for yourself as a sort of like, I am queer, or whether nobody can actually be queer because if you are queer, then you're immediately, and you kind of like uh, think about what this term means, then you are immediately not queer anymore. Like the stabilization of queerness as a signifier within your body becomes a sort of normalization of that signifier. So queerness is always something that you are called uh, in a way, if you think about the, the history of this term, in, in order to, in, in a sort of like, in order to um, name you something bad, but I'm actually not queer. Like queer queerness is a sort of like, uh, is a sort of dimension that you kind of like, um, can acquire in, moment, in, in those moments in which your identity actually collapses, for instance. So that's like another uh, way of thinking queerness. Uh, Lee Edelman, this other scholar, talked about like queerness is the dead drive, for instance, in which like, it's this access to jouissance that uh, normal, normative structures uh, in which we live keep like prohibiting us to access. Um, so all of this in order to say that, um, I don't know, once upon a time it seemed to me that queerness, queer meant kind of like, yeah, lamenting the sort of like cleansing of spaces. Uh, Samuel Delaney, who lives here in Philadelphia, has this like book on um, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, in which he was describing now this process of... Um, destruction of all the um, uh, more interesting porous spaces uh, uh, around Times Square, like porn, porn cinemas uh, um, or public toilets uh, that happened in the 90s and uh, in the late 80s and 90s. So kind of queer there is a sort of like thing that need to be cleaned up in order to produce a more a sanitized society. Um, and now it seems to me that we kind of like are in a way like wanting to build up more sanitized spaces. So that to me is the contradiction which is operating according to, that I think will be interesting to think about. I don't know what the answer is because I totally see the problematics of nowadays. Um, and uh, I don't know, but that's I think a debate that should, is, I think it's like really will be worth having uh, for instance. And then the other thing, and again for me it's like more a question that I have for you two is uh, who chooses to be called queer, for instance, instead of gay, lesbian. Like when I was in grad school, for instance, it was, um, I think I never almost had a gay friend who was identifying as queer, but that's my personal experience. Like, I don't know, in, in, within like the students community at Penn, like who identifies as queer? Okay, I'll take a stab at it. So I think that queer is almost like 
I hate to say it like this, but I don't hate to say it like this at all. It's like a group of like white gays being like, we're having an event, but we're calling it queer <laughs> because we're inviting everyone. And I also think that when it comes to like identifying individually as queer for students, um, I feel like there are a lot of conversations on campus about like labels and like what labels feel comfortable for people and how they're limiting or whatever. Like it's a recurring conversation. And I think a lot of people come to the conclusion like, oh, gay doesn't feel quite right for X or Y reason or bi doesn't feel quite right. So it's kind of like a default. Like if there's mm -hmm. not a label, people feel like they just jump to queer and that's the term they use to describe themselves. I mean, that seems to me what happened to the term uh, in a way um, which originally had this utopian force of going somewhere where we are still not in the, at the beginning of the 90s. And now, from what I gather from you and also my perception is that it's a default term to make some sort of like space or identity more inclusive and acceptable. So it's not going anywhere new in a way. It's just kind of um, normal, kind of producing a sort of space in, in which to be safer and more inclusive according to what we already are, not according to somewhere to go from here, um, which is totally fine. I think that's what happened to the term. It really kind of, and it's its success in a way, uh, and it's its limit at the same time. Um, but then my question would be like, is there like another way of like thinking queer, which is, um, which is not just about safety in the sense that like, this is kind of like the paradox of it. If we think again back to Samuel Delaney and Times Square and what happened there, those were not safe spaces. Like the queer spaces that he identified that, uh, like the queer spaces of Times Square that were kind of like clan clan cleansed and destroyed. Um, had to do with a lot of danger and uh, it was a space for gay men of like potential uh, encounter with like dangerous situation all these toilets where toilets where like straight guys were going and queer people were trying to hook up with them so that's like a very dangerous situation especially um, yeah in that period in the, in the late 80s but that was also what attracted uh, or like made possible specific encounters for people who had no access uh, in public spaces, uh, lower class populations uh, that could not like host uh, parties uh, uh, in their houses or, and now again, if we think about what building up a queer space is, is in a way erasing the possibility of danger. Um, again, I think this has to do with the sort of like good political things that have happened uh, according to this paradigm. But what are the costs of it? I think that we tend very rarely to think about the costs. So I think that like request and political action should also be accompanied by a sort of um, meditation on the history of this term and how to claim a space and what it means to... Um, claim it in a way well thank you so much for being here we really appreciate it thank you so much for inviting me it was great
Thanks for listening to Bottoms on Top with myself, John Holmes, and my co-host, Andreas Pavlou. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. We record in the Wexler Recording Studio at Kelly Writer's House, and we want to give a special thanks to The Daily Pennsylvanian, our producer Joyce Varma, and Andrew Ellis, who provides our theme music. You can find him on SoundCloud as Dummy Fresh. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or conspiracy theories, feel free to email us at podcasts at thedp.com. We'll see y'all in two weeks.